And we're in a new series, we're starting one today, called The Passions of Grace. And in this series, what we're doing is uh, we're kind of going back and just talking about the values and the things that really drive Grace Church. But uh, in, this, uh, in this series, uh, we're doing this because, because we grow so aggressively. So many of you have just come to Grace the last couple of years, and that's awesome. I love it. And some of you have been here forever, forever. And I'll be honest with you, you haven't held up well. I mean, really, it's taken its toll. Uh, but it's important for us to, to go back kind of to our core. We do this every couple of years. We go back into our core kind of restate, re-examine uh, our values, or our passions, why we do what we do, even a little bit of how we do that, so that those of us who are newer to grace can kind of come up with the speed and get on sync with that. And then uh, those of us who have been here a while can be reminded of why we do what we do and uh, why we make the investments we make and all those kind of things. So I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to be energized and excited. And I know I always am. I'm, I get re-energized just uh, studying this stuff up and thinking about it a little bit. And so excited to do here at this, uh, kind of at the end of the summer, right before we launch back into the, the full-blown ministry year. So that's where we're going to set up camp for a while. So the values of grace, the passions of grace. Here's the first one we're going to talk about. It's Grace Church's value of connecting with those who are spiritually seeking, connecting with those who are spiritually seeking. We want to help people who are looking for Christ to find him. And we want to make their path to Jesus as unencumbered as possible so that when you connect with the church, when you connect with grace, Jesus is on display. He's clear, he's accessible, and you can lock into that. And that is very much what drives us, always has, always will. It's very much what drives us as a church. Now, where does this come from in Scripture? How does it play out into kind of who we are as a church, let's dig at this a little bit. If you've got your Bibles, grab them, open them to Romans chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. It's page 788 in those Bibles in the chairs. And if you have a smartphone, iPad, we use the U version app. And if you hit live event, there's our zip code, and I can meet you right there. Romans chapter 10, <clears throat> let me just frame it up a little bit. The Apostle Paul is talking. So the church is real new here, right? So the church just started in the book of Acts. Thousands of people came to follow Jesus at once. A supernatural thing happened. God kind of juiced the church, got it rolling. So now the Apostle Paul comes along. And one of the big things the Apostle Paul does is he speaks on God's behalf, is he explains to the church what we are and how we are and how we're supposed to work. And so this early church, most of the people, if not all, probably not all, but definitely most of the people who came to know Christ in that supernatural act called the day of Pentecost were Jewish. So Jesus was a Jew, right? So Jesus was Jewish and he was the promised Jewish Messiah. So Paul was explaining to the early church, hey guys, Jesus came to, be, uh, to redeem the Jewish people but you don't have to be a Jew to accept Jesus as your savior. He also came to the Gentiles. Gentiles are just people who aren't Jewish, right? So I'm a Gentile, most of us are Gentiles, probably not all of us, but most of us are. We, didn't, we don't have a Jewish heritage. And so Paul was explaining to the Jews, guys, there's, Jesus is the Messiah for you, but he's the Messiah for all of us. 
He is the God of the Old Testament. He is Yahweh, but he is also this promised Messiah. He is our Savior. And that is the core thing that we agree on, and it's actually the core thing that all Christianity um, kind of spins around. So verse 9, chapter 10, Romans, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul lays down kind of that base. and He says this, this foundation is kind of the centerpiece of Christianity. All of the theology, the nuances of it that was spent off of that, even the nuances of doctrine that was spent off of that, you cannot possibly call yourself a Christian if you haven't come to that agreement, that Jesus is Lord, that he was raised from the dead, and that salvation is found in him, that I have to proclaim that, so to say, and I have to accept my salvation from Christ alone. So that is, that is the essence of Christianity. And Paul is saying, guys, for the, as the early church, remember this is all like new to them, right? For the early church, that's the peace that never goes away, it never moves, it never alters. And all who proclaim that, all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. It's the essence of all of it, okay? Now, what the Bible teaches us is this, that when I accept Jesus, several things happen to me. So my sins are forgiven, the Bible says that the moment I accept Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in my heart. And another thing that happens that we probably don't talk about enough is that I become a part of the church, okay? So everyone who's a follower of Jesus is a part of the church of Jesus Christ. The church is not a religious organization. The church is a spiritual entity that Jesus set up. And so I become a part of that church, one who's called out by Christ, so when Paul says this, he says, in essence, when you make this proclamation, your sins are forgiven, you will be saved, and now you're a part of the church. And what he does then in this passage is he goes on, starting with verse 14, and he starts to talk to the church. So all of us who agree that Jesus is Lord, that he died, he was buried, that he rose again in three days, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, he is Yahweh, he is the Messiah, he has all those kind of things, and we've proclaimed that we're saved. Now, those of you who are saved, the church, what are you supposed to do? Right? So he's explaining all this to everyone, and he starts to ask a series of questions. Verse 14, how then can they call on one of whom they have not believed? The they is all of those who have not yet believed on Jesus, so it's the world, it's the lost, it's the unsaved. There's a bunch of different terms we put on it, but it's the they. How can somebody, Jew or Gentile, proclaim the name of Jesus if they've never heard the name of Jesus? How can they call on one of whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? So I can't call on Jesus if I don't believe in Jesus. I can't believe in Jesus if I've never even heard of Jesus, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? I can't hear of Jesus unless somebody tells me about Jesus, right? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? 
So I can't, somebody can't tell me about Jesus unless they come out and tell me about that. Now, how are they going to hear about Jesus if they can't, they can't believe in him, if they haven't heard him, they haven't heard if they're not sent? Who's supposed to send them then? Well, it's those who have already believed. It's the church, okay? So the church is to send those who will preach so that people can hear, so they have the opportunity to believe. And what Paul is teaching here is this idea that when I receive the gospel or the good news of Jesus, the message of Jesus, I am not to hoard that information. I don't keep it for myself, right? So when I, when I find out that Jesus is Lord and I receive the forgiveness of my sin, I'm not to wipe my brow and think, woo, it dodged the hell bullet, <laughs> right? I might do that, but there's a secondary thing that has to come into me, and it's this idea, wait a minute, there's other people who don't know what I know. There's other people that I love, that I know, that I interact with, and then there's people all over the globe that don't know anything, and they don't know the name of Jesus, they haven't believed in it, they haven't even heard it, how are they going to hear unless somebody tells them And how is somebody going to tell them unless we, who know it, send them to tell them? And so he concludes at the end of verse 15 there, and he says, this is is what is wonderful and powerful about the church as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. It's gorgeous, it's wonderful, it's amazing, it's loving, it's beautiful when I bring the good news of what? That there's a Messiah, that he'll forgive you of your sin, that you can go to heaven, right? They, all those who don't know, need to know, and we who know need to go tell, okay? Now, we would look at this here at Grace and we would say, this right here is one of the prime directives of the church, A Christian is one who tells the good news of Jesus. I don't just accept it, I tell it. In fact, I would argue from Scripture that you can't separate those two things. That if I've actually accepted the good news of Jesus, I will, by nature of God changing my heart, become one who proclaims the good news of Jesus. So I don't just take it and keep it, I go and tell it. Jesus himself leans into this, the end of Matthew, when he gives the Great Commission. He talks to the church, And he says, now you go, you go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything I commanded you. You've got this good news, you've received the salvation, now you go and you do something with it. Later on, the Apostle Paul's writing again, he's talking, he says that Christians are ministers of reconciliation. That what a Christian does is we help other people get right with God, that's reconciled to God. The very essence of Christianity is this idea that we would send, go, and, and tell. That applies to me personally. A church is a sum total of its individual parts. So I am the church, and we are the church, all of us who have received and believed the good news. And so it's a prime directive in my life. I'm to do the work of an evangelist personally, and then we corporately or to proclaim and send out the good news of Jesus because how can you believe in one you haven't heard of and how do you hear unless somebody preaches and how can they preach unless they're sent? 
So we take the name and the salvation of the good news of Jesus out. So that directive is inarguable in Scripture. You cannot escape it. And it's a prime directive of the church. In fact, I'll go so far, this will get me in trouble as soon as it hits Twitter. I'll go so far as to say, I'm not sure you can be a church if you're not proclaiming the good news of the gospel. You can have your head full of theology, full of doctrine, full of ritual, full of religion, practice, all that kind of, you can do all that. I don't know that biblically you can actually be a church unless you are sending, going, and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. It wouldn't make sense biblically to call yourself that unless that prime directive was engaged, okay? So Grace would look at that, and we, we would take that very, very seriously, and we would look and say, man, that seems like that should be the kind of the center point of all that we do, that proclaiming the good news of Jesus is, is like something that we should kind of live for. We should give our money toward, our time toward. We should organize our efforts. We should really live to do that. So that prime directive is there. Now, the question becomes then how, okay? Because there's lots of different ways to proclaim the good news. So what, what do we do about it? Do we hand out bullhorns to everyone as we leave today? So you can go yell at children on street corners. I find it to be a very effective method of proclaiming the good news, right? Should we give out bumper stickers that says eternity, smoking or non-smoking? <laughs> so funny. So should we do that? You know, what, what should we do in order to proclaim the good news? Well, we would look and say, we believe that Jesus actually laid down a pattern for us in Scripture. And this pattern is something that we picked up on years ago when we started Grace. Grace is uh, 13 years old. So when we started Grace years and years ago, we picked up on this pattern. And I don't, I don't think it's the only pattern. So I think people can do things differently than we do it. But it's the pattern that we have operated on. It's a passion. And it's one of the great values and vision drivers of Grace Church. And we draw it right out of Jesus' life. So if you go back to the left in your Bibles, a couple hundred pages to Matthew... Matthew chapter 9, Jesus himself was doing something, and we look at what he did, and we've drawn principles out of it, okay? So Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, what did Jesus do? Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. And we would pick that passage apart, and we would draw some principles that are really defining and governing principles for our church. I want to make sure that I show you these, or we revisit these even today. What's the first principle? It's this. How is the church to take the good news? How do we do the prime directive? What's involved? Verse 35, Jesus went. That word went's a big word. Maybe underlined it. It's circled and highlighted in my Bible. He went through all the towns and the villages. We'll pause right there. 
were to take the good news, how do you take the good news? First of all, you go and do that. You go. Jesus went. He hit the go button. He says that in the Great Commission. He tells the church, you go into all the world. You preach the good news. You move with it. Jesus himself did not seek to put down roots, build a temple, and draw everybody to him. Okay? The law was fulfilled in him, and the way that you interacted with God shifted between the Old and New Testament, where the gospel comes to you instead of you coming to it, to the temple like you did in the Old Testament. And Jesus himself did this. He went. He took the good news out to the towns and villages. He went to where the people are. As a follower of Jesus Christ, my prime directive, one of my prime directives, is that I go, I with intentionality, with purpose, with vision, I take the good news to people. I start with my closest inner circle and move all the way to people that I've never interacted with before, but God drew me there somehow. So I start with my family, it's my closest neighbor. I would move out to my friends, my physical neighbors, my coworkers, my classmates, my teammates, on down the line, all the way over to the far reaches of the world where the good news of Jesus needs to be proclaimed. I'm going to go even there. Curtin K. Carver here, raise your hands, guys, real quick. There are missionaries full-time in Chad, Africa. They're in town here to enjoy this beautiful weather in Akron, Ohio. So Curtin K. would have shared their faith with their family, their friends, and then felt a special call of God to go to the middle of Africa to make sure that the good news, they're going to go, right? This is the way the church does it. It's with intentionality. It's with purpose. It's not just lifestyle evangelism. It's not just be nice. I'm purposely, prayerfully, I'm going to tell you the good news of Jesus and make sure that you know so that you can believe in one who you have now heard of. And this is huge. And this applies to me as an individual and it applies to us as a church. Why? Because God did not give the church to the church. He gave the church to the world. He didn't give us the good news so that we could hoard it, so that we could enjoy it, so that we could all get together and hug each other and sing a song and be happy we're not going to hell. He gave us the good news so that we could take it. It's an assumption that the church would do that and a clear and a prime directive in Scripture, okay? So if we're taking it, the first thing the church is going to do is we're going to go. Here's the second principle we draw out of this passage. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Let's pause. He goes to towns and villages. Where, where does he go? He goes to their synagogues, into their culture. And while he's in their culture, he teaches the good news of the kingdom. This is the principle that we would draw out of this. We need to take the name of Jesus, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and we need to teach it in an understandable way. We take the good news of Jesus and we teach it in an understandable way. We take the gospel of Jesus and we put that gospel on rails that make sense to the culture that we live in. We translate it 
into a cultural language that makes sense. So just as if we were, if we were going to Mexico and we wanted to share the good news of Jesus, we would speak Spanish, right? If we were going to Chad, Africa, and we were going to share the good news of Jesus, we would, we would learn French and we would try to share the good news of Jesus. When we're trying to share the good news in Akron, we have to speak uh, Akronese, I don't know what you would call it, some, some odd language, right? So we would, something between West Virginia and Cleveland, whatever that language is, right? That's our language. So we would, we would find the cultural language and we would speak it so that the gospel is understandable. Now, I want you to hear what I did not say. Ready? I did not say that we change the gospel to make it culturally palatable. Never. What was Jesus doing in the synagogues? He was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He was teaching about himself. Jesus never apologized for who he was, never. He never backed it off a little bit because it might hurt somebody's feelings, ever. The gospel of Jesus will never be apologized for at Grace Church, ever. And the truth of the Bible will never be made culturally palatable, ever. So cultural norms are always going to change. Norms of ethics and morals and terms, of, that's always going to shift around. The truth of God is unchanging and unyielding. So we're never going to look and say, in order to be relevant, we better start accepting X, Y, Z. Absolutely not. The Bible says it, it says it, that's the end of the discussion. But when I go to communicate the gospel, I have to communicate it in a language that makes sense. Or the communication becomes the barrier to the truth of who Jesus is. Okay? Now there's, there's ramifications to that reality. Let me tell you a couple of them. If you grew up in church, some of us grew up in church. First of all, I hope you've recovered from that. There's counseling available. We'll help you with it, all right? But if you grew up in church, this is what is true. The way that the gospel was taught to you probably is no longer effective. The way that the good news of Jesus was brought to you is probably no longer effective in our culture today. So I grew up in the church, and if we wanted to share the gospel, we would bring in a southern gospel group, have a concert, and at the end, the pastor would give the invitation. That ain't going to work anymore. Uh, we, would, we would bring in a special speaker and have a revival service, and you would get your neighbors, and that isn't going to work anymore. On New Year's Eve, we would show The Thief in the Night. It was a movie about Jesus' return, and it would freak you out, right? That's not going to work anymore. Why? Because culture has changed. The message doesn't change. The gospel doesn't change. The methods of delivery change. And that's always going to be the case. Now, at Grace, our prime directive is always going to be to proclaim the good news of Jesus. We're always going to look for whatever the current rail is that we need to deliver that on, and we're going to do that. That means that Grace is always going to be changing. It's always been that way, and it's always going to be that way. So we're going to do some things differently. So for instance, we would look at our main services, and we would say, 
we're going to take our main services, which are the most convenient times for people to come to church, and we're always going to prefer people who don't come to church. So if you're our guest this morning, this service is more for you than it is for people who come here all the time. Okay, why? Well, because we wanted you to be our guest. And when a guest comes to your house, the attention of the house goes to the guest, not to the inhabitants of the house, right? So we're always going to look and we're going to say, how do you connect with that or how do you prefer someone? When we think about a guest, we tend to think about a 24-year-old unchurched person. And one of the things that we would know generally about a 24-year-old person in our culture today is that they didn't grow up in church. So that means the religious subculture, church tradition and church ritual are not something that we're ever going to value or lean into here at Grace. Why? Because it makes no sense to the people that didn't grow up in church. I grew up in church, so I know what it means to be washed in the blood, the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. If you didn't grow up in church, that sounds like a horror movie. Okay? So we're not going to use that language, right? Because we want to make your path to Jesus as accessible as possible. Another way that this is going to show up, it's, just, it's going to show up in the way that we teach. If you're a baby boomer, you don't have to raise your hand, we can tell. But if you're a baby boomer, okay, this is, this is the way that we were raised as baby boomers. Baby boomers would say this question, tell me what is true and prove it and I'll do it. Tell me what is true and prove it and I'll do it. A 24-year-old unchurched person doesn't think that way. A 24-year-old would say this, show me what works and I'll accept it as true. Show me what works and I'll accept it as true. So here at Grace, we would look and we would say, when we're going to teach the Bible, we're always going to start at people's place of need. People don't come to church to find God. They come to church because they have problems. And so if we can bring a solution that is from God to that problem, it serves as a pathway to God. Same gospel, same biblical truth, not apologizing for any of it. We're just going to get there on a different rail than maybe you grew up with. Another place that this shows up is music. Music. The music at Grace is always going to be loud, and it's always going to be new, and that's never going to change. Never has, never will. It's going to be the way that we are. Why? Well, for a few reasons. Number one is because a 24-year-old, the younger generation, doesn't interact with music to sing it. They listen to it. So our music is going to sound more like a concert than a sing-along. And when we say things like, I can't hear myself sing, I'll say, great, that means the volume was just about right, okay? Because it's where they're going to approach things from. What kind of music are you going to use? I had a pastor, a friend, a couple years ago, he asked me, he said, Jeff, he goes, how do you know what kind of music your congregation likes? And I looked at him and I said, I could care less what kind of music my congregation likes. And I want you to know that. I love you. I just don't care what kind of music you like. Okay? I care what kind of music a 24-year-old unchurched person likes. And our styles of music is always going to reflect that. The music you like, I encourage you to listen to it. Get an iPod. They're beautiful things, and your teenagers will teach you how to use them. 
They're, they're, they're great, okay? But the four songs that we're going to sing together every week are going to be given over to that person who's seeking to connect with God. This music, it's not even always my preference. I like Southern gospel music. If you looked at my iPhone, it's full of the cathedrals and the Gaithers and the Blackwood Brothers and the Florida Boys. It makes Ezra's eyes bleed. (laughs) It's kind of funny. Sometimes in the office, I'll hit intercom all, and the whole music department will run into the parking lot and try to run themselves over with cars. It's hilarious. But I love it because I grew up on it. So it's it's a connection for my soul. See, it feels good to me. But when we're together, I can give my four songs a weekend over to somebody who's trying to connect with God. See, we're always going to think that way. Why? Because it's a value. And that's always going to change. The music we do today, we're not going to do in three years. The top 40 songs today are not going to be on the top 40 radio station in three years. Okay? And that's, by the way, is how you know you're getting old. When the songs you listened to in high school are now on the old, it's the 90s. You're like, oh, snap. (laughs) It happened to me, you know. I'm my father, okay. So we're always going to shift like that. Why? Because we're going to go into their synagogues, okay. We're going to proclaim the gospel. You will be hard-pressed to find a church that's more theologically and doctrinally conservative than Grace Church. Okay? You don't have to back off the gospel, and you don't have to surrender the truth of the Bible. But you can speak Spanish when in Mexico. You can speak French when in Chad. You can speak a language to a generation who's desperately seeking a Savior. Jesus went in all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and then look what he did, and healing every disease and sickness. As we take the good news, we're going to take it pragmatically. We're going to take it pragmatically. A church should never hide behind truth or hide behind service. The two must always be married together. Why have we sent more than a million meals out of Grace Church the last few years to famine relief? Why do we spend so much money and time and energy doing that? Because that kid who is starving to death is not thinking about their relationship with the eternal God. They're thinking about the fact that they're hungry. And we live in a culture where the greatest health epidemic in our culture is obesity. We got the money to feed that kid. So if we can feed that kid and erase that problem, we've earned the right of relationship, and we're not just going to throw food at them and make their tummy feel better, we're also going to bring the good news of Jesus. When you prayed for food, Jesus answered you. See how that works? When we're in Chad, when we have worked on the hospital and stuff there, why? Because when I am dying, and I need surgery, and I need help, What's on my mind is my pain or the fear that giving birth to this child may take my life or whatever the crisis is. If we can alleviate that crisis, we want to do that. We're not just going to heal the body. We want to bring truth to the soul. So we're always going to marry those two things. Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom and he healed people. He did did both things at once. It was all who he was. 
So we're going to take the gospel and we're going to take it pragmatically. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in the synagogues, their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Guys, listen. The crowds is the lost. It's the they. They who have not yet believed and proclaimed the name of Jesus. When Jesus saw the lost, he did not see enemies. He saw people who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When the lost acted like lost people, it never shocked Jesus. When sinners participate in sin, it doesn't shock Jesus. Why? Because the lost act like, talk like, think like, are motivated like lost people. Their morality makes sense to them. Their decision-making makes sense to them. There is no Holy Spirit. They're probably not a part of the church. There is no accountability. There's no longer a biblical foundation of truth in the culture. So if you didn't grow up in the church, you're really not even exposed to it. Their decision-making makes all the sense in the world to them. And they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They're not our political enemies. They're not the people that are ruining the country. They're not them gays and them immorals and them per. What in the world? They're lost. Why would I expect them to not act like it? And when Jesus looked at them, he had compassion on them. It didn't shock him or take him off guard. He did not shun them. He did not push them away. He did not become angry at them. He did not try to isolate himself from them. He did not try to purify himself from them. He did not keep his followers from interacting with them. He loved them. He gave to them. He ate with them. He dined with them. He hung out with a prostitute. He hung out with a tax collector. He let the sinful woman wash his feet. And the religious community of his day crucified him for it. The church is to love the lost, not be afraid of them or despise them. The church of Jesus Christ is not commissioned to save the country. The church of Jesus Christ is commissioned to build the kingdom of God. We're not citizens of this world. So the things that affect our hearts are different than the things that would affect the hearts of others tied up in the culture. So when Jesus looked at the lost, he viewed them through the lenses of compassion. He viewed them with the desire for them to know that he is their savior and Messiah. And he took the good news to them, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Why do we take the good news? Because if you are a Christian, if you think of yourself as a Christian, you are by definition a worker. That's what the church is. 
The reason that we don't go to heaven the minute that we accept Jesus as Savior is because we're here on earth to do the work of proclaiming the good news of Jesus. I am by definition a worker, and a worker's place is in the harvest field. The stats say this. When someone accepts Jesus as an adult, the first year that they're a Christ follower, they tend to share their faith on average about 20 times. The second year that they're a Christian, that drops to 15 times. The third year that they're a Christian, it drops to seven times. By the fifth year, the average Christian shares their faith zero times. In a survey that's about six months old, 60% of evangelical Christians said they feel no obligation to share their faith with anyone. The average number of people who come to Christ in the average church in North America is zero. If you can look at the Bible and cause that to make sense to me, I'll give you my house. I can't see it. I don't even think you can be a church if no one is ever coming to know Christ. Because you're sending, you're not proclaiming. How can you proclaim the name of Jesus and love people and have no one ever come to know? Doesn't make any sense. I don't know how you can think of yourself as a Christian and have no concern for the lost. I would have a terrible time rectifying that. And it's typical. See, the harvest is plentiful. We often complain about the harvest. They're taken over. They run the schools. They run the media. They're not our enemy. That's the harvest. Where does a worker belong? in the harvest field. Doing what? Harvesting. It's a prime directive. Because at the core of everything that is Christianity is the confession and the belief that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died, he was buried, and he rose again, and that he and he alone is the Messiah. He is the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father unless they come through him. So when I believe that with my heart and confess it with my mouth, I, I receive my salvation. But how can I believe in one that I've never heard of? How can I hear of one if no one's ever taught me? And who's going to teach me if those who have heard hoard it for themselves? Let me ask you a couple questions. If you're here this weekend and you think of yourself as a follower of Jesus, who are you taking the good news to? Because at a, at a minimum, at, at a bare minimum, kind of, maybe squeeze it in there, if I'm not praying for someone who's lost, 
Now I should be going and verbalizing, but if, we, if, we're, if we're trying to like find something, if I'm not at least praying for, if I have no concern for the lost. Now listen, I love you, but you need to take a real look at your heart. Because I would actually be nervous about your relationship with God. How can I say that Jesus is the prime relationship that I have in my life, but my heart doesn't reflect his at all? I don't know how you do the math on that. And what's our attitude toward the lost? If I have an adversarial attitude toward those who are just living in sin, that's what sinners do. How do, you, how do you think of ourselves as a follower of Jesus if we hate the people he died to love? I don't know how that works. Could you and I be friends if you hated my kids? I don't think we could. So if I have an adversarial relationship, if, I, if I'm so mad at lost people because of political wins, I'm not called to reclaim a country. I'm called to build the kingdom of God. I'm not a citizen of this world. So how can those two things be at odds with each other so aggressively? I'd encourage you to take a hard look at your relationship with God. Because as I understand it, when I read the book, when I fully embrace who Christ is, he transforms my heart so that my heart is like his heart. And his heart is passionately beating for those who don't know him. And what about us as a church? God did not give the church to the church. He gave the church to the world. And guys, I, I just tell you, if you don't share that perspective, you will never feel at home at grace, ever. We're going to spend a fortune trying to proclaim the good news. And after we spend a fortune, we're going to come back and ask you to give another one so we can do it again. We're going to spend all kinds of time and energy trying to share the good news. And after you invest and sacrifice your time and energy, we're just going to ask you to do it again. Because it's, it's what a church is. It, it's, what we, it's what it is. I don't know what else you would do. And if your heart doesn't align with that, <clears throat> grace will wear you out. Be three, four years, and you'll be like, the music's not that good, and Jeff, while pleasant to look at. <laughs> See, it, it, it will wear you out because it's never done. I, I don't... The harvest is never fully reaped. So if that passion doesn't drive us, you won't feel at home here. Now, if it drives you, you're not going to be able to get enough of grace. See? It's 
for those of you who are Christians. And let me say this. If you're not a Christian here today, guys, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you have looked at Jesus and his offer of salvation and you have understood what he said about you and what he says about himself, and you have rejected that. I just don't want anything. I'm here because grandmom drug me here today. I don't want anything to do with it. Then I got you, and, and you and I both know we probably don't have a lot to talk about then because you've made your decision, right? And we're, we disagree. If you have never had a clear view of Jesus, though, I grew up in church, but I didn't have a clear view of Jesus. My pastor yelled at me every week. I think he had anger issues. I think he needed like Zoloff or something. He's always yelling at me. So he'd be, he would say, you're wicked, and you're a sinner, and you're immoral, and you're far from God, and you're in, you're, your soul is going to be damned to hell, and he beat the pulpit, right? Now, here's the thing. All of that is true. It was true. He wasn't making it up. It was true. But he would present that in such a way that I had to somehow get past him to get to Jesus. And many of us grew up that way. We grew up in church, but we got an incomplete picture of Jesus. Jesus loves you, and we're all okay. That's a lie. Jesus does love you, but we're not okay. We're sinners. Many of us got a complicated path to Jesus. If you take this class and do this thing and go through this thing and this and this and this and come in three times a week, then you get to go to... So for many of us, we've never dealt with Jesus. We've dealt with the religious confusion that man puts around him. And for many of us, that has hurt us and scarred us and pushed us further from Christ Now, let me say this to you today. If you're here this weekend, and if you have been hurt by people who in the name of Jesus have slapped something like that on you, then you know that. In fact, you can think of that right now. The biggest hypocrite I know is, just fill the name in. It's your dad, it's your mom, it's your old pastor, it's whatever, okay? This is what i like you to do. Let's play a little mental exercise. I would like you to take, think of the person who hurt you. Think of them right now. And I would like you to take what they did to you, and I would like you to assign it to me. Okay? So it's not so-and-so's fault anymore. Now it's Jeff's fault. Okay? So I I want you to blame me for it. And now what I would like to do is I would like to apologize to you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you heard half the story. I'm sorry that you know all about God's wrath and almost nothing about God's love. I'm sorry that someone was a hypocrite, that they abused you that your mom and dad would smack a smile on at church and then go to war with each other all week long. I'm sorry that your view of Jesus 
is so obfuscated by all this garbage. And if you could forgive that and put it aside and see who Jesus actually is, because you're a sinner, you're wicked, you're immoral. See, I always knew that. I always wondered how my pastor knew what I did that weekend. Because <laughs> he, he, he's right. He just messed it all up trying to tell me about it. And I got hung up on him and pushed Jesus off to the side because of him. If we could get him out of the way, and if you could look at your Savior, see, there's a God who loves you, who cares for you. He is the only way to heaven. And you're a sinner. We all know that about ourselves. And he wants to forgive. And he wants us to place our life under his leadership. If you would wrestle with that, then, and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you raised from the dead, profess with your mouth, and you'll be saved. Passion of grace is to connect with those who are spiritually seeking and to help them connect with the Savior that they seek. And anything that we can do to get out of their way Anything that we can do to proclaim Jesus louder, we're always going to do it. We're always going to do it. See? Because it, that's, that's the point. All right. Band's going to come out. Take a few minutes here, guys. And would you think and pray about this? If you don't have a love for the lost, would you confess that to God right now and ask for forgiveness? Ask him to bring to mind right now someone that you can pray for, intentionally go to, and verbally tell about Jesus. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, would you confess that? Would you forgive the person who screwed it up for you and deal with who God is? Confess your sin. Place faith in that Jesus is Lord, that he died and he rose again. And receive the salvation that he offers and begin to follow the Savior that loves you. Would you think about that? Would you pray about that? Maybe let that be passion of us, Grace Church.